Back in 2021, the Mets were linked to Theo Epstein, of course, the legendary executive from his time with the Boston Red Sox and Chicago Cubs. Epstein and Steve Cohen ended up meeting once, decided they didn't particularly want to work together going forward, and that was that. Flash forward to now, 2023, Mets are being linked, of course, for many, many months, if not years, to David Stearns. Not as accomplished as Epstein, of course, but has a great reputation from his time running the Milwaukee Brewers. Stearns has been able to talk to clubs as of August 1st. Industry sources are linked linking him to the Mets and the Astros, as first reported by The Athletic. What I can add to that is that the Mets have gotten further down the road with Stearns than they ever did with Epstein. This was not a one-and-done meeting, and there's a possibility that they will hire him as a president of baseball operations. Billy Epler would remain with the organization either way. There are no sure things yet, but David Stearns and Mets has now advanced from the rumor phase into the concrete phase. They have been talking. Tony, I know you players about Stearns. What do they have to say? Yeah, the Mets actually have four guys on their roster right now who did play under Stearns or on rosters that Stearns constructed in Milwaukee. So I spoke to a couple of them this week in Washington, and they were very complimentary of David Stearns. I think that goes without saying of a guy who has that kind of success. And people did talk about his track record, his education, all that stuff. But I would say, Sal, what struck me is that you know, the criticism you hear of David Stearns maybe is that he can be a little robotic. He, you know, you get that sometimes with some of these Ivy League educated right. guys, etc. He seems like the opposite from what these players are saying. He seems like a very personable guy. Daniel Vogelback described the guy who's out around the cage at BP every day, which you certainly don't see from a lot of GMs around the league, interacting with his players in the clubhouse sometimes, things like that. So um, that's the type of thing that I think can play well in New York and can certainly play well when you're coming to a new team in a new organization looking to shake things up. So yeah, that's my takeaway, and it's, it's, I think, a good one for the Mets if they do wind up getting this guy. Listen, David Stearns looks the part, right? He's a New York kid. He has the pedigree in Milwaukee where he's built winning teams, not championship teams, but winning teams, and would come in as an accomplished director of baseball operations. So it's a tough move to kill down the road if the Mets go in that direction because to me, fellas, it's the obvious move. It's the no-brainer move. He wants the job. It sure seems like the Mets clearly want him. Now, if there's a knock on David Stearns, he did a fabulous job developing a pitching staff with the Milwaukee Brewers. He did not do the same thing when it comes to developing a lineup with the Milwaukee Brewers where it's been a team that has struggled to score runs on a consistent basis. But if we're sitting here a month from now and David Stearns is the new director of baseball operations with the New York Mets, who in their right mind could kill that move? I mean, honestly, who can? No, I think it's probably the best. I mean, look, I know people bring up Theo Epstein, but that's He doesn't want the job. Exactly right. Stearns is from here. You, know, you pair that with Steve Cohen, who loves the team. Stearns reportedly grew up a Met fan. Billy Epler had experience in New York. Uh, yeah, you can't knock that trio, assuming that it does get done eventually. Let's make the call to the bullpen and welcome in Jim Duke. Cat Jim, what makes Stern so appealing to the Mets? Well, I, listen, I think there's a lot of reasons. Like some that already were mentioned by by these guys, but I, you know, I think there's he's been trained really well. First off, he started out as a Met intern, right under Omar Manaya, and then he went over to the commissioner's office, and he's got that pedigree coming from MLB. He went over to Cleveland. Cleveland's had a high success rate. He learned under that group there. And he went down to Houston, learned under Jeff Luno, who, you know, had a tremendous success down there in the uh, Astros organization before going to Milwaukee. And then when you look at what he's done in Milwaukee, he's won five of the last six years. If you count this year, they're going to win the division. That'll be, I think, three division titles over that stretch. Uh, you know, he's built a team on a very small market budget, very similar to what Tampa has done. And even Cleveland, they, he's probably done it as well or better in some cases. So he has all of the elements. I'm really curious 
when and if he comes over, how he would do with a much bigger payroll. You know, I think even last year, you know, talk about the relatability there that uh, Vogelbach was talking about. You know, he acknowledged when he made the trade, uh, trading Josh Hader last year, that it didn't resonate in the clubhouse there and re uh, realized his ways. And, and maybe that was not the right move. Uh, because they didn't get to the postseason after that. So uh, there's a lot of things that I think, you know, he's learned on the job there. He's maybe made a couple of mistakes that, you know, he won't make when he comes to New York. So I think it's a really good fit if they can come to terms. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, September the 10th, 2023, of course. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, talkingmetsnog. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network as well as risingapple.com. Uh, welcome to another edition of the extended garbage time, Talking Mets. It's almost like uh, we've grabbed that moniker for Masterpiece Theater. Yes, it is garbage time. And I'll be honest with you guys, I am kind of tired of it. I actually can't wait for the season to end. This has been, an, and I'll get into more of a post-mortem and thoughts on the season and where it stands in Mets history, because this has been an odd year. I think I'll wait till the end of the year to do that, or when it's really dead in terms of news. Fortunately, even since the sell-off at the end of uh, July, the Mets have been able to make some, you know, newsworthy, uh, not moves, but there's been some news around the team and some things to talk about. So, anyway... I guess I'm going off on a tangent already, and I haven't even started up yet. But uh, as far as this edition of the program, David Stearns, he potentially could be the next president of baseball operations. We'll get into that. Are the fans underappreciating Billy Epler? We'll get into that. Kodai Singa, again, struggled a little bit on Friday, but the results looked pretty good, even without his best outing out there, without his best control and command. Is Kodai Singa maybe an ace? Maybe the Mets have an ace and they didn't have to go out and worry about signing another Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander. We'll talk about that. And who out of the baby Mets, and boy, do I hate that term, but I guess in order to describe the segment, I have to use it. Who out of the baby Mets might be the best? We'll give you a little hint. It's somebody that recently was called up and Ed Blankmeyer talked to the New York Post. Ed was a uh, manager a couple of years ago down in Brooklyn and had a chance to be around all those guys. So we'll hear, you know, we'll, I'll give you a hint about who Ed thought. You kind of saw that little teaser there, who the best of the baby Mets are, and he gave some interesting insights to the New York Post earlier this week. So we'll round out the show, talk about that. But you heard coming in, Andy Martino, the Mets are down the line or down the way, whatever you want to call it, with David Stearns potentially being the Mets' next president of baseball operations. This is a, a job that Steve Cohen has wanted to fill for a while. 
traditionally, as we talked about a week ago, the real way to do this is to come in as the owner, hire your president of baseball operation who's out there to set the vision. And I think that that's important because even I, as I looked at these titles, I'm like, let me do a little research. I mean, really, it gets muddy. The president of baseball operations, the GM, I mean, teams have employed that. And, you know, you start to go out and and look at what some other teams have done. And look, your president of baseball operations basically overlooks the whole entire uh, baseball front office situation. It's more about the strategic vision. It's more about being at the head of that table. It's more about with your scouting and player development, your GM, who will be Billy Epler, and all the other stakeholders within the baseball realm. That individual is there to kind of set the vision, bless off on what each department's doing. They're not there to go out and do what a GM would do, which is worry about who's the 26th man on the doubleheader on August 18th. You know, that's what the day-to-day stuff with the GM is. It's more of a strategic type of situation. And that's why you hire them first. I even looked at what, uh, and it was really interesting, when the Tigers hired Scott Harris away from the Giants, who was a Giants GM, and they talked about, you know, why they hired Scott Harris. They talked about his ability to construct a baseball organization that's competitive with the modern game. They talked about his leadership ability, having the ability as an executive at multiple levels and his ability to mentor talented baseball operations, leaders, uh, innovation. I mean, these are things that right now are falling on Billy Epler and maybe falling on a guy who's more of a GM, more of a baseball rat, so to speak, someone who's very into analytics. When you talk about the entire organization developing and procuring leadership talent within the front office, that's what the president of baseball operation is to do. And truthfully, when Cohen came in and wanted to hire somebody, I mean, since then, over the course of the last couple of years, there's been talk of somebody who will be the team president, someone with a much bigger role that will have an impact on, obviously, the baseball, which is the core reason why the team exists, but also the business side of the organization. Really, right now, the Mets don't have it, and they had because of the situation with Cohen coming in in the middle of COVID and some of the stuff that happened and some of the misnomers about who he is and fears of... You know, being in New York or working for him, I think some of it is New York and the media. We've talked about that ad nauseum on this program. Uh, it didn't happen, so they had to hire Billy Epler. Billy Epler's been running the show. And look, it's it's clumsy for Billy Epler to be involved in hiring his boss. But the rumors are about Peter Gammons a couple of weeks ago said that the Mets should be hiring someone soon. Everyone said, what's Pete know? Well, now you're hearing they're down the road with Stearns. No short thing. It sounds like Houston is in the mix. Uh, look, I, and you heard going in, there's some nice things to like about Stearns. New York guy, uh, Duquette talked about how, and, and, and Anthony DeComo, they talked about, I guess, the human element to Stearns, where he's not this robotic, Harvard-educated, Ivy League analytics guy that all he sees is numbers and, and stratomatic players on the on the back of the stratomatic card. Seems like he tries to get down on the field. He recognized with his trade of Josh Hader in the Milwaukee situation about how that impacted the clubhouse in a negative way. So the people aspect of the game he seems to get has worked in the MLB front office with the Mets, with the Indians, worked on the Lunhow in in Houston, whatever you think about the Astros and Lunhow with the whole trash can situation. That's an organization that was transformative 
So you learn a lot. He's got a lot of experience. And then he's out in Milwaukee working for an owner that it was described as, you know, a demanding private equity guy, not with the same budget as a Steve Cohen, mind you. And he goes out there and the Brewers consistently, albeit in a division that hasn't been the strongest, so let's just put it out there. You know, yes, the Cardinals are in that division, but still the the NL Central hasn't been the strongest with the Reds and the Pirates, you know, being some easy wins and easy Ws. Even the Cubs uh, have been, uh, up until now, last couple of years, haven't been the, the best competition. But you don't take anything away from him. So he's got some promise. Look, you're not going out there and hiring a Billy Bean or a Theo Epstein with that kind of resume. First of all, those guys are not available. They've moved on to the next phase of their baseball lives. Sounds like Epstein wants to be an owner. Bean, I think, is just happy in transitioning that team to Las Vegas. I mean, he's talked about for a decade you know, wanting to be more in a in an ownership situation or a mentorship situation. So, you know, those are pipe dreams. You know, the, uh, Cohen had to do his due diligence. So, you know, it is the right move in the sense where this is a promising young exe- young executive. We have no idea how he's going to perform. Uh, everybody has him down as this all-star superstar executive. We have no idea. Uh, he did some nice things in Milwaukee, but uh, let's face it, it's not like the Brewers have been the 98 to uh, 2001 Yankees here. They don't have four titles in five years. Uh, he didn't break curses in two different places like Theo Epstein. He didn't transform the game, uh, you know, like a, a, a Billy Bean, you know. It didn't happen. So you're you're basically looking at a guy similar to you would as a player who has a nice resume, has done some nice things in a, in a market, not New York, but you like what they have to bring, and you think they're ready to take the next jump at the stardom. And maybe that's the case. And here's the best thing. And I don't know if Cohen listens to this show. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Certainly they're not going to make any decisions about the president of baseball operations listening to this program. Although I give some good ideas. I'm going to pat myself on the back. But we've talked about the task at hand, about how long it's been since the Mets won, how they're in this 1940 New York Rangers curse you know if you want to put them in the same vein as the Red Sox and the Cubs situation and the pressure and the media and even now with the whole Stern situation they've already tightened the screws on Cohen Joel Sherman writing an article saying how if they don't hire this guy it's a failure they're already saying he can't not hire him I don't agree with that be nice to hire David Stearns but look uh you know it's not the end of the Mets if David Stearns doesn't come here I'm sorry you know, this is not, he's not the Shohei Otani of executives. Let's put it that way. There's nobody that's too big that will, you know, not getting them will destroy this franchise. I mean, I don't believe that. But I think it is important for them to start building out this front office because it's been disjointed from day one under Cohen. It start, started to show this year because of the dis- disjointedness. Epler's been trying to hold it together and he's done a really nice job. But the point here is, is that Stern's living here having worked here briefly as an intern under Manaya, a time which was a very difficult time despite some of the success around here because of the collapses and what have you, understands what he's getting into. He understands the market. He understands the fan expectation. He understands the media. So Stern's coming here negates this wide-eyed Ivy League, you know, other executive from Cleveland or Milwaukee or Tampa that, you know, may have all the skills that you need and all the best ideas, but has no idea coming here 
how that translates to the media and the fans and whatnot. That's why, you know, I heard recently someone tell me that there are a lot of people in the Mets organization. I'm not talking about the front office. You think the Mets can't rebuild because it's New York. I mean, that's a, a thing that's out there. And look at the reaction when Billy Epler uh, sold off. I mean, despite the fact that now, four or five weeks later, everybody recognizes it was the right thing, recognizes that maybe he did not just a good job at the deadline, an outstanding job, yes, with Cohen's money, to bring talent in, trading two future Hall of Famers. I mean, look, the Mets have traded Hall of Famers in the past. They traded Tom Seaver. They didn't get the kind of talent that the Mets got paying down the salary of Scherzer and and Verlander. Now it's talent. But it's tough because they were criticized. A lot of people, even after the Robertson trade, before that Scherzer-Verlander wild 72 hours that came a few days later, already, despite the fact everybody knew that was coming, that it looked like that was the right thing to do, they won a game at Yankee Stadium, maybe you got your hopes up, and all of a sudden they rip it apart by sending their closer out, and the criticism started, and the fans' hand-wringing started, and... The talk heads over at WFAN, to this day, there's one particular guy that just can't get over it and was screaming down Anthony Tacomo a couple of weeks ago. So a guy like Stearns gets it. So coming here, he's not going to be fooled into thinking that he's coming into Tampa, Milwaukee, or Cincinnati. You can't manage the team in that particular way. Now, part of that president of baseball operations, you have to wonder, is will he be the front face voice for this team in front of the media because I think Billy Epler is not a good front face voice for this team in the media I think he's a nice guy I think he's a bland guy Um, you know he gives you some meat to chew on not a lot but he's very analytical based he's very dry he's very inside baseball and I said this and you guys know it who've been listening for a while back to last year's deadline this is a guy that when things are bad, people are going to hate him. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened as the season went to hell in a handbag. And that's unfair because I think there should be some appreciation for Epler. There is still this idea out there from fans that Epler's gone and that Stearns has taken over this team. Stearns is not coming here to be a GM. He's done that gig already. He did that gig with Milwaukee. He stepped away as the team president and got out of that, you know, you know, taking the leave of absence, whether that was to decompress and get his family and his life in order for his next challenge. We don't know. Was it that he was just burnt out from Milwaukee and the ownership and maybe the near misses and, you know, the fact that he, in his mind, took that team as far as they could go. And then there was the hater situation where they traded hater and it didn't go over well in the clubhouse. And and maybe that was a mistake. So, you know, I think that there's been this misperception that once Stearns comes in here, he's going to be the GM and do everything baseball. That, to me, has never been, and Cohen's been pretty open about that, if you listened, that he wanted to hire president baseball operations. There was talk of them hiring somebody that's going to be a team president, not just a baseball, the team president. And I would not be surprised if that's still Stearns, even though he's a baseball guy. Here's a smart guy, Harvard-educated, worked in the commissioner's office, understands more than just balls and strikes. And that, if I'm Stearns, I really want to put my chips at the center of the table and get paid big money. That's the job I go and get, the team president. Not the president of baseball operations, the entire team. From the business side to the baseball side, everything has your fingerprints on that. And if they win and they become a better organization, top to bottom in all facets, under him as the team president, 
Wow, that puts you into a pantheon. Because that's the challenge. So Weiss from Houston. Houston's probably, a be- not probably, definitely Texas is probably a better place to live than New York these days. I mean, I wouldn't live there, but I know there's a lot of reasons to live there from a financial standpoint to, you know, culture and whatnot, depending on the kind of person you are. Uh, he is from New York. He is from Manhattan, so maybe that's not his cup of tea, but he was out there, and it might be a better place to raise a family, you know, debatable, but could be a better place. So I wouldn't just dismiss the Astros, but without any kind of cap, you have to think that Cohen's going to throw big money. And if the challenge is New York, and on top of it, the possibility, and this is me just speculating, you know, reading the tea leaves from what we've heard, that this is more than just a, a president of baseball operations or a baseball front office job, but a job about team president. You know, that's a big deal. I don't know if you're getting that in Houston. I don't know if you're getting that in Boston. You know, it doesn't sound like the Yankees are getting rid of Brian Cashman anytime soon, so he's the only chance for him to come back home is the Mets. You know, the Phillies have Dombrowski. I don't think the Phillies are an option. So, you know, that's where that's at. As far as Epler, I think it's really unfair how much bashing he gets. He has done a good job. Everybody forgets the circumstances that he came on. Under. He was not the number one choice of GM. It was a schizophrenic situation because of all the Alderson transition and the Zach Scott fiasco and the Jared Porter fiasco. I mean, nothing has been traditional for Cohen from the point that he closed on the team in the middle of a pandemic after the season ended, a month after the season ended, and had no choice but to shotgun the 2021 season. I mean, they've been shotgunning this team for two years. I mean, Epler gets hired right around Thanksgiving in the middle of free agency and has to pivot. And, I mean, look, comes in Black Friday, signs Marte, Canna, Escobar. I mean, all three of those guys, whether you like where they are right now or not in terms of, you know, what you got in terms of the trades or what they did this year, they are all parts of the 2022 Met 100-win team, important parts. And none of their contracts were albatrosses. Even Marte. I know that Marte's still up in the air. And then immediately, a week later, he lands shares. I mean, this is the GM. Yes, with the help of Cohen and Cohen's salesmanship and Cohen's money. Cohen's money is always going to be a benefit to anybody who's in that chair. He beat the Dodgers for Scherzer and Verlander. Think about that. And the world champions. The same Mets team before he came in that also had Steve Cohen, but had Zach Scott and Sandy Alderson and Cohen in the meetings Lost to the Dodgers for Trevor Bauer, who probably will never pitch in baseball again. Is getting lit up, from what I understand, over in Japan. Just a winter earlier. Then you have the lockout. So you have the lockout clock going. So you have to get all this done with the lockout clock going. Comes back from the lockout. Needs another starter. Gets Chris Bassett, who was the Mets' most consistent starter throughout 2022. For JT Kinn, a nice prospect, but an ERA over 8 in AA this year. Adam Aller who the Mets stole in the Rule 5 draft, had one good minor league season. That's a steal. Yes, Bassett was on the last year of his contract, so maybe that played into it, but that's a steal. No Bassett, no playoffs in 2022. Most consistent pitcher. And then you get a draft pick when he walks at the end of the year. Even this winter, he hit off Robertson. I know Robertson struggled since he got traded, but he was outstanding in the absence of Edwin Diaz. Tommy Pham was a fine. Brooks Raley. Senga, who we'll get into later. They might have even stole a quality bat in DJ Stewart. You don't like the deadline he had last year? 
Yes, I understand. You may even say, look at the prospects he gave up with Tyler Naquin. They have some promise in Cincinnati. But look, you know, whether it be the optional relievers like the Brighams of the world that you don't like, or the fact that he didn't go all in last year, the directive from the owner is I need a farm system. So Epler's trying to compete and win without a farm system that was very well healed. You saw that by the deals that they made, how it changed the farm system and the depth of the farm system overnight. They had to protect their top prospects, four of which now are in the big leagues and potentially going to be playing a big part in the offense next year. We haven't even gotten to the pitchers. So you protected all those guys, and who knows? If you land on a couple of them, you look like a genius because what were you going to get? You weren't going to get Juan Soto. You weren't going to get necessarily an uber-impact player. So you were going to give up an A prospect, maybe for a B-minus or B talent, for a team that was in a pretty good place already and marginally was going to be improved. I know I sound like him. I mean, I'm not going to get crazy about this. Was everything great for Epler? No. Do I think he could have went a little bit more in on the bullpen this year and got a few more veteran arms instead of just relying on those optional relievers? Yes. I think he could have. Um, you know, did he go too bland on the offense with the contact and the defense? You know, looking at that from a city field perspective where the Escobars and the Cannons, maybe you could have went out and got more productive hitters. You know, maybe. But again, in context of him coming in last minute, and trying to build this team, you know, from day one, it wasn't certain that the Mets were going to go blowing away the luxury tax. That wasn't the plan the first couple of years. And also remember this winter, the Correa situation hijacked the offseason, a successful offseason up to that point where they, they were able to get Nimmo. They got Robertson. They resigned their own guy. They got Verlander. Yeah, they lost to Grom, but, you know, they were basically, they were par. When they got Senga, the theory was the rotation was pretty much the same. They had a reinforcement for Diaz. Then the Correa situation comes. It hijacks the entire holiday season and holds the Mets in hostage for three weeks. Maybe that played a little part into them not rounding out the roster quite like they wanted to, but it is what it is. So I don't think it's fair to say that this guy has been a bad GM, and I don't even care about Anaheim. And look, I read the article in The Athletic about how he recruited Senga. And this guy is entrenched in Japan. He did a good job of talking to his uh, baseball people, his pitching coach, his analytics team. I mean, he, when you read that article by Will Salmon of The Athletic about how they recruited Senga, he did a good job putting all the resources that he had in front of him to make a pretty good decision on Senga and recruit Senga to the United States to play in New York. Understanding the Japanese player and the cultural challenges they have, which may have a great impact on Otani this offseason. It may have impact on Yamamoto. Who knows? We don't know. Money talks in the end of the day. And there are other good places to play in this league. So, yes. Am I excited the Mets are finally putting this front office together? Yes, I am. I think it's been disjointed. You know, you're cleaning out the player development system. Stearns coming in potentially could, you know, put his own philosophy in. Epler goes into his lane as the GM. You know, somebody could go out there and, and do the day-in and day-out job of the GM. Maybe Stearns takes over as the mouthpiece to the media. You know, maybe he's a little bit more polished. I don't know. I haven't heard him talk enough. You know, maybe that's still Epler. Maybe Stearns, you know, stays out of the fray. I don't know. 
But I think right now Cohen's doing some of that stuff. And I don't think Cohen wants to do that. I think Cohen wants to enjoy his toy. I think he wants to get into the big meetings to pitch the big free agents and the big uh, uh, agents. But he's got a pretty important day job because that day job funds, and that's a big-time day job, funds his toy. And without his focus there, the toy doesn't necessarily have the resources that it needs to be the best in the business. So uh, am I excited? Yes, the idea of this finally coming to a close. Uh, I think Stearns is a, a, a definitely a good candidate. Am I going to cry if it's not him? Absolutely not. I do have faith that Cohen is going to go out there and find a guy to fill this role. And I think that the Mets are going to be well on their way um, to, to turning this thing around. I think it's going to take some time. And I think the biggest thing I keep saying is they're trying to win now and rebuild. Nobody's ever done that. Really. I mean, the Dodgers uh, under the equity group did it, you know, a little bit. Um, but nobody, you know, typically teams rip this thing apart. And, uh, you know, the Dodgers actually got their management team in place pretty quick, unlike the Mets, when there was a transfer of ownership there. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, is Kodai Singa an ace? And how does that impact the Mets and their offseason pursuits of pitching? Billy Epler was pretty honest with Jim Duquette and Jim Bowden on SiriusXM Radio last week. They're going to go for pitching. There's some pitching out there. Not as high-level pitching as you think. There's a lot of maybes and ifs and risks. So does that make Singa more important? And is Singa an ace that we have right under our noses and we don't realize it? We'll talk about that and more right after this. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc well what do you say about senga and his season this year you can see it in his toyota numbers take this on for size third in era at 3.08 fifth in batting average against the 210 swung on and missed and Kodai Senga has his first strike out of the evening. Strike three called. He got him. So there it is. There's strikeout number 178 for Kodai Senga, tying Jerry Kuzman for second all time. Swung on and missed strike three. So Senga gets Castro. The 0 2. Take it in there for a called strike three. So there's strikeout 180. The payoff. Swung on it, missed strike three. Went with the four-seam fastball, blew it right by Kirilov, two away. All right, we're back. Kodai Senga. Look, you guys know when I'm wrong, I'm going to be accountable to myself. And I've been wrong about a few things. 
I still don't think I was wrong about Chris Bassett. He's pretty much had the same type of year when you look at the whole pie out in Toronto, and the Blue Jays very well might be in the postseason. And I think the Mets miss him, and I think they should have signed him along with Singh, and I think maybe they could have withstood the Quintana injury a little bit. But when you start to look at Senga, and, you know, to me, you heard some of the, the numbers that Ron Darling cited, uh, you know, coming in on the uh, the clip. And, you know, whether it's ERA, strikeout rate, he's top 5-6, you know, a war, he's in the top 15 to 20 for pitchers. And, you know, clearly he's a guy that should get some rookie of the year votes and maybe he gets some down ballot Cy Young votes. I'm not going to get too deep into the Cy Young and the Cy Young award when it comes to this thing. I, I don't really care. It's an individual award. You know, maybe when the season's all said and done, we'll dive a little bit deeper into it. But for me, you know, most of Senga's resume, impressive resume, happened, you know, around June 1st. And I think maybe when he had that outing against the Phillies, that really good outing against the Phillies, you started to see him, the worm turn a little bit. That was the end of May, early June when that happened. And in the second half, let's just take what fan graphs or baseball reference has as the second half. Uh, I wanted to go look at the walk rate because to me from the eye tests, the thing that I noticed about Singh is not walking as many batters. He doesn't seem to be laboring through. Now, he did on Friday against the Twins a little bit, but he was able to navigate it and get out of it. You know, one of the things early, you know, I go back to even those Oakland, San Francisco starts where he was just, would just labor through the game with so many three-ball counts, so many 2-0 counts, and then not make it through five innings. So, you know, Senga in the second half has a walk rate of about 3.45 per nine. Still a tick high. I'd like to get it down to about three. But if you told me that's where it's going to stay, with his strikeout rate, with the amount of uh, lack of contact there is against him, he could be successful. Walks kill. You know this, anybody who is a listener of this show, whether it be in the bullpen, the rotation, teams that walk a lot of batters, pitching staffs that walk a lot of batters, are not going to be successful, and those are not winning teams. You can't issue free passes and win baseball games. Maybe you could win some games, or maybe survive it over a small period, but in the long run, you cannot be a successful team with walks. It's a simple adage of baseball going back to, Abner Doubleday. I'm sorry. That's just period. That's I believe that, and it's going to be hard for anybody to, to email me and contact me and, 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 you know, tell me anything different. So, you know, really good whip in July. Had a whip under one in July. So Singa is starting to make you wonder, did the Mets steal an ace? Now, I don't think Singa is an ace. I'm not ready to say I was completely wrong about Singa. I still think the walks are a problem. Uh, you know, those who are into mechanics are a little concerned about his mechanics, and there could be reason to believe that he can't pitch consistently on a normal five-man rotation without spacing out his starts. But that could be the issue for every Japanese player, including Yamamoto, who's got some rough mechanics too. I mean, look, I'm not just saying because Chris O'Leary on, on Twitter is saying it. Just look at the 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 video. A novice person can see those are rough mechanics. And if you remember correctly, and this is probably not going to be remembered, it was thrown away, but when they did the physical, there were some things that came up on saying this physical that were concerning, and the Mets worked through it, and Singh actually was quite appreciative of it. So right now, I would say this. I think, you know, Singh to me was a back-end 4-5 guy 
when he signed. I didn't think he'd be better than that. I thought he was replacing more Taiwan Walker Carrasco than he was Bassett. I can confidently say, if he's healthy, that this is a number three. He's going to have nights where I think he could pitch like an ace or number two, but he's a number three with nights or stretches that he could pitch at the top of the rotation. He's still not averaging quite six innings per start. You want to be an ace, a couple of things that has to happen for you to be an ace. One, you got to get into the seventh inning consistently. That's a Mike Silva credo. Used to be the eighth or the ninth. That's not baseball anymore. You got to get into the seventh inning. If you can't get into the seventh inning, hard for me to say you're an ace because for you to complete seven innings, you're just handing six outs over to the bullpen. You give your team so much better chance to win. That's number one. Um, you have to be able to get into the seventh inning. And, you know, number two, and I understand it was the culture in Japan. And look, Senga has shown a work ethic and a desire to assimilate into American culture and to be the best American, not the best Japanese baseball pitcher in America, but the best, it seems like to me, the best American pitcher possible. You know, he's got the ball and the difference in ball under wraps. You know, they're trying to space him out for his innings. They're, they're treating him, even though he's 30 years old, the Mets are treating him like, uh, you know, someone who, you know, has some minor league innings that they have to manage at this point. It looks like they're doing that. They're going to have a sixth starter. Now, going forward, if that treatment is necessary, and it's possible to keep him healthy, to keep him effective, uh, you know, it's very possible that that's going to have to continue. I'm sorry, that's not an ace. So I don't look at him as an ace. You know, even Quintana, who I think is a guy, and Quintana's another guy, he profiles to me as a three or four. You know, he reminds me a lot of Taiwan Walker. But he's a guy that I think, when healthy, in a groove, could easily give you six innings, two runs. You know, maybe he gets into the seventh if his pitch count is low. Uh, but I don't think he's going to consistently do that. I think you got a guy that'll get you 18 outs. So right now you got yourself a good 3-4. So what does that mean for the rotation going into, you know, 2024? Well, it means the Mets have to spend on some pitching. And they've said they are, but that's where this thing gets complicated. Now, you saw Tyler McGill throw, what, five shutout innings again today. He walked four batters. Peterson, it's funny because I waver on this. I watched a little bit of Peterson yesterday. I saw the video where he's changed his, where he comes to the set. Uh, You know, he certainly looks to be better, Peterson. You know, I'd have to do a deeper dive. You know, one of the, the segments we'll do, I promise, before the uh, the season's out is to kind of dive into McGill and Peterson since, you know, they, they've they come back and, and been part of the rotation post-Scherzer, post-Verlander trade. You know, what Peterson is better. You know, McGill has been better. I don't think you could go into next season with them as your 4-5. You just can't. That's That's not a good baseball team. They have not shown any consistency. There's nothing they can do in the final you know, three, four weeks, and, and and honestly, they've been pitching in this rotation for the last, you know, they'll wind up at the end of the year pitching the last six or seven weeks. There's nothing that they could do that will convince me that they're ready to take the ball every five days and be an adequate fifth starter. To be a fifth starter on a team that's going to compete for a playoff spot, you have to be league average. You have to be able to go out there and give you six innings, three runs, just like Peterson did on Saturday. He kept them in the game. Bullpen imploded, not his fault. McGill, to a certain degree, can do the same thing, and he's done that. Can they consistently do that? Would I trust both of them in the rotation? Absolutely not. I think one of them eventually is going to have to be a long reliever. Do they go into the Trevor Williams role? I don't know. 
I mean, that's a different, you know, conversation for later in the offseason when things kind of crystallize. But, you know, right now, you probably are going to go into spring training with Senga as your three, Quintana as your four, and then you're going to see potentially, uh, you know, who from the McGill, Peterson, Lugazi, Mike Vazel, you know, maybe, you know, you throw in some of the kids at some point in the season, Tidwell, Hamill, Scott Stewart, Yoander Suarez now throws a no-hitter in Biggins, and maybe that's a name that's popped up on the radar here. You know, those are, you know, that's not terrible. Looking at some of these kids, how they are, that's not terrible depth. You're going to need about 10 starters. I just rattled off four, let's see, you know, four at the big league level. Uh, Tidwell, Hamill, Scott Stewart is eight. Suarez is nine. Lucchese is 10. You know, you got yourself, you know, about 10, 11 pitchers already without even going into free agency that you could look towards in 2024. That's not bad. And maybe you go out and you sign Carrasco to a minor league deal, bring him back to spring training, see, you know, maybe he needs surgery. I know he got a, a shot for bone chips. Maybe there's something going on in that elbow again that potentially, you know, the Mets kind of know the guy. You know, he's not going to get a lot of offers. Uh, you know, I think he's done, but who knows? Maybe there's something going on physically because he did have uh, a somewhat decent 20, uh, 2022 on that 100 win team. So, you know, maybe he comes. You could do that with other veterans, not just Carrasco. But the real question is, so if Singh is not an ace, do the Mets have one? And the answer is no. And, you know, look, I don't know if they really have anybody out there that's worth paying big money, uh, you know, to bring in to be, you know, a B or B-minus pitcher that you call an ace. Like, Aaron Nola, is he really an ace? An interesting pitcher. You know, maybe Shohei Otani could go and be a number two again at some point. Uh, his agent seems to be optimistic about the arm injury. They're being a little secret about it. You know, that's going to be the where the winner starts. The winner starts with Otani. Is Otani an option? Because he, everything pops from him. Then you have Yamamoto and some other Japanese options that maybe you know, not going to cost you draft picks. So maybe you go that route. But you can't, you know, you got to treat those players just like you treated Senga coming in with a lot of caution. Yeah, their numbers and they profile better than Senga Yamamoto, but they're an un- unknown quantity who are going to be going through the same challenges of the culture and the food and the baseball and the every five days and the travel and all the other stuff. You know, and who knows, you know, does, uh, you know, do they go and they maybe go and get a Jordan Montgomery? That's an early name that intrigues me. But if you go up and down the starting pitchers, you know, Blake Snell comes across as the most ace out of those who are out there that are not Otani. But do you want to give a 30-year-old who's been inconsistent and couldn't get anybody out in a playoff game a year ago uh, a, a five- or six- or seven-year deal and want to have to eat more money? I mean, Cohen's already had to eat so much money. I think Snell's a high-risk, long-term signing. Urias looks like he just, you know, off-the-field incident, looks like he just played himself out of the league, potentially. So, Senga's not an ace, but he's important. And he's become more important than you could imagine. So, don't Mike Silva, if, if, if I was the GM, I wouldn't have signed him. I would have given the money to Bassett. I would have, you know, you know, bet on Bassett, which is, you know, still a good bet. Probably would have bet on Bassett over Quintana, but... Then I would have been robbing the Mets of this potential. And look, I could be wrong. He's shown so much improvement so quickly. He's such a good, positive personality, it seems like. And he does have good stuff that if he gets ahead of the count and throws strikes, that fork, that ghost fork is deadly. It's 
a high swing and miss strikeout pitch. Uh, you know, let's not discount his ability to be an ace, but certain things ha- certain things have to happen. More economical pitch counts, getting into the seventh inning. And I honestly think if he's go- and if I don't know if this is possible, maybe doing this will hurt him and he'll expire a little bit quicker. And I know he's got an opt out after three years, so who knows? You might you know you might need to re- have a conversation about resigning him after his third year, a conversation for another day. But you know, you have to pitch every five days for you to be an ace, and he's not. Now, is he, at this point, what you've seen of Scherzer on the back half of his career and Verlander's, even despite Verlander getting through outings, but his peripherals aren't great, is he any worse than those guys? No, he's not. But those guys still have that Hall of Fame in them, and they can jack it up at different times. They just can't consistently do it. Let's see them do it in a postseason spot. There is no Verlander. There is no Scherzer. The last couple off seasons, because you still had DeGrom, up until this year, you had the Groms, you had an ace, you were looking to get your Batman and Robin scenario. That's gone. It's possible the Mets are going to go into next year with a rotation of a lot of number threes. Now, if you look at the 1999 Mets, Al Leiter, in the same vein as Senga, was kind of a number two. Maybe you want to say Senga's a number two, maybe you could do that. So Al Leiter led those teams, but you had a lot of number threes, like Kenny Rogers and... And Yoshi, maybe he was more of a four. And Rick Reed. And guys like that. Bobby Jones, more of a four or five. So you had a rotation full of threes and fours and fives. That's why if you're not going to get high-end, top-of-the-rotation uh, ace talent, you really can't go on McGill and Peterson. The rotation would be too shallow. As it is, the Mets are going to be coming into next year with a lot of question marks. I don't see a scenario where the Mets address all their needs in the offseason via trade, free agency, or even have an idea about the development of their rookies and their prospects, that they will go into spring training without a plethora of questions. And I think this year coming in, in 2024, into next year, I should say, you might have more positional battles and more interesting spring training dialogue and shows than we've had in a long time. Because there'll be so many kids trying out for the team. There probably will be question marks. There'll be guys coming back, potentially like a Beatty or a McNeil and, you know, players that didn't have the greatest seasons that you're going to want to see. You know, can they be everyday players? Are they valuable parts of a winning club? So it'll be interesting. You know, in a rotation of a lot of threes, sure, Singer looks like an ace in that situation. But, you know, there's no Scherzer. There's no Verlander. Blake Snell is not that guy. Noel is not that guy. Urias, even before the domestic issue, not that guy, in my opinion. So now they have to be more creative. Is there a lot of Jordan Montgomery's out there? Are there guys that they haven't, we haven't even talked about that are promising, that are value-driven, that they could go inside? A Michael Waka type, let's say, who's done really well in San Diego. Hey, Seth Lugo's got a player option. Maybe he opts out and comes back. He's done a nice job as a starting pitcher. Love to have Seth Lugo back. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. Final segment. Who, out of all the baby Mets, ugh, I hate that term, is the best? And are the baby Mets even good prospects? I have my thoughts. Ed Blankmeyer, who used to coach St. John's baseball and was a Mets minor league coach for all these guys at some point. He's no longer there. Had some thoughts the New York Post. So we'll round up the show, talk about that right after this. Mauricio lines that one into right field. He's got himself a base hit. So for the sixth time in seven big league games, Ronnie Mauricio with a hit.
back. Final thoughts. So, off the bat, I know I got some grief on Twitter. I hate the Baby Mets moniker. I really do. And, like, they're overusing it on social media. Like, you know, Cohen and his wife, Alex, were at uh, a Cyclones game yesterday, and they call, called them the Infant Baby Mets. Like, I, I, I got to tell you guys, it's annoying. I know Lindor started it. Um, it's, it's, it's anointing guys that, quite honestly... Only one of them has even remotely been a productive member of this team. And even Alvarez, and I'm talking about Alvarez in that standpoint, has had highest of high peaks and lowest of low valleys. So he's got a little bit of ways to go. But he's been the most impressive out of all of them, especially behind the plate. And, you know, I referenced that there was a Post Plus article. I think it was Dan Martin of The Post. And I highly recommend you guys read it. It was over on September 8th. And Dan Martin, it was it was entitled, What do the Mets have in their four prize rookies? They're about to find out. So Ed Blankmeyer, uh, former St. John's coach, coached down in Brooklyn a couple of years ago. Uh, Blankenmeyer. I should say Ed Blankenmeyer. Let me say the guy's name right. Ed Blankenmeyer. Um, oh, no, it's Blankmeyer. Ed Blankmeyer. So they have two. Blankenmeyer and Blankmeyer. So if I go to the article... And this is a total non sequitur. I thought it was because I've interviewed Ed Blankmeyer back when he was a St. John's coach for the old NYBD site um, a long time ago. It's Blankmeyer. I thought it was not Blankmeyer. Blankmeyer. So they made a mistake. The New York Post made a mistake. The editor is over at the New York Post. You got one thing to do: edit, get the thing right. Um, so they were talking about um, his thoughts because he coached all these guys, and you know. And it's probably a little bit of a tease by the clip I played coming in. I mean, he thinks Mauricio might very well be um, the best of the best out of these guys. I mean, look, and I saw, uh, you know, the dugout cam for Seattle, how impressed they were with that first hit that was 117 miles per hour. I mean, honestly, we get so caught up in these, how hard guys hit the ball. You hit a hard ball right at the second baseman at 105 miles an hour. Yeah, it's hit hard. But it's an out. You hit a line drive right at an outfielder. You know, it's an out. Like, hitting the ball hard is important. We get it. It does process versus outcome. But if the outcomes aren't there, the ball could be hit to the moon. It doesn't matter if it doesn't go out of the ballpark. Let's put it that way. Uh, That's called 5 o'clock lightning at that point. When you're great in batting practice and it doesn't translate to the game. So, um, you know, right now, when you look at these young Mets... I mean, there's a chance that each one of them, and I tweeted about this yesterday, each one of them, they're going to be in some way, shape, or form in the lineup next year. I mean, if you look at it, Alvarez would be your catcher. Mauricio potentially could be either your DH or your second baseman. I personally think McNeil around the field, and I think he's a very good outfielder, McNeil. I have to say, I think he plays the corner well. I think he plays right field well, especially with Marte's uh, groin issues continuing. You might need him out there. He could play the corner outfielder. You know, he couldn't go. He's, you know, he's a good second baseman. But, you know, if Mauricio has to play second and he can hit, you know, putting McNeil in the corners. If McNeil is not the McNeil you see this year, the McNeil that hits 300, I don't care about the home runs, but he's got to be a guy that hits 300, you know, gets on base, gets you doubles. It can't be a McNeil that has a 650 OPS. That's a backup player at that point. A versatile player, a good player to have, but a backup player. Um, so I could see Mauricio at second. Uh, Beatty at third, obviously you have Lindor at short, you know, potentially one of the kids, Acuna or Gilbert could come and play center. Maybe you move Nimmo to the corner 
to keep him a little bit more healthy, depending on what goes on with DJ Stewart in the DH spot and things like that. But, you know, you need you eventually need to make room for Gilbert if he continues to progress his development. Acuna, um, you know, Beatty's going to be. I mean, all these guys potentially could be in the lineup next year consistently and going to be relied upon to be part of what Billy Epler's gone on record and said is a winning team. See, Alvarez and Mauricio, to me, and I haven't even gotten to Vientos, who could be like a DH, maybe a third baseman, probably just a DH, the right-handed part of the platoon, maybe. Uh, maybe he takes on that Darren Ruff role, you know, if they don't want to go out and get somebody and, and pay big money. I personally think the Mets are going to spend on pitching. I think they're going to be in the Otani market and the pitching market. But if they don't land Otani, I don't think they're going to go out and sign B or C hitters and give them uh, C hitters B money and B hitters A money just to get them on a two- or three-year deal. I think they're going to say, hey, who can we get on a one-year deal? I don't even know if Tommy Pham falls into that anymore. I think Tommy Pham is going to want a multi-year deal after the kind of season he had. That's a guy I might bring back. Maybe Mark Hanna, the guys like that. Anybody with a one-year deal, fine. But guys that could be moved to the bench if the Acunas and the Gilberts and guys like that become you know, ready for, for action. Maybe not out of spring training, but at some point in the first you know, 80 games or so. Um, Alvarez, to me, has been the most impressive, like I said, his defense behind the plate. I mean, Blankmeyer talked about this is a guy that, because of his defense, he's definitely going to pop 25 to 30 home runs. Talk, they talked about they want Alvarez to have 125 games next year. So 125 games, you're looking at, what, uh, about 500 at-bats, 475 at-bats, plate appearances, rather, I should say plate appearances. There's no reason with 450 to 500 plate appearances this guy just will walk into. Even if he's a below-league average hitter like he is now and has his peaks and valleys, he'll walk into 25 home runs. He may be streaky, but the difference with him and some of the other guys is that he provides you an important piece behind the plate. With the arm, the arm is good. The pitchers like him. When a Hall of Fame pitcher blesses off on you like Scherzer, a picky guy, you can't go wrong there. He's good at framing. Framing will still be important next year because I don't think the robot umps are coming in yet. It sounds like they're a little bit of ways away still. So, you know, Mauricio, let's see him go around the league. Hits the ball hard. He seems to be talented. Brandon Nimmo even talked about that, um, you know, uh, on the pregame yesterday, how talented you could see he is. You know, he's a free swinger, so that may lead to prolonged slumps and may make him more of a feast or famine guy. But you know what? In the end, if the numbers are 20 and 75, 270 with adequate defense at second, I you know, not adequate, solid defense. I should say adequate, solid defense at second. I'm not asking to be a gold glover. Solid defense at second, that's a win. Now, as far as Vientos and Beatty, those are the guys I'm not sure about. Vientos hit a little bit better since he got called back up. But the fact that the Mets have been so eh on him makes you wonder. And I have to tell you, and I know I get killed for this on Twitter, I have seen nothing from the minute after that guy hit his you know, home run in his first at-bat, had a nice series against the Braves last year. I know he broke his finger like you know a week and a half, two weeks later. But... I have not seen anything from Brett Beatty since he's put on a big league uniform that tells me he's even a big leaguer. Yeah, the defense has gotten better. He's made some good plays, made a good play again, I think, today. You know, he made a good play to end the ball game against the Nats earlier in the week. All right, the defense maybe is getting a little better. He's made some nice plays, looked like Brooks Robinson. Look, the story of Brett Beatty is that ground ball in Philadelphia that screwed up that game on that Sunday afternoon, a routine ground ball. Those are the plays. If he doesn't make those plays, none of his diving plays make up for that. 
Because then that's just highlight reel stuff. That's like an NBA player that does a great dunk on the highlight reel, but plays no defense, um, you know, can't shoot, you know, doesn't do anything to help the team win. But, but man, that dunk, ESPN, you know, just played the top 10 dunks of the month. He's on there. Big deal. That's carnival nonsense. You want to be a carnival player or you want to be a baseball player? That's the difference. I've seen nothing. Hits the ball on the ground a lot. I know I got grief for saying that he doesn't hit the ball hard. Look, I know the stat cast numbers. What I see is a guy that doesn't hit the ball hard, hits the ball on the ground. Maybe it's more appropriate. Hits the ball more on the ground. So maybe hits the ball hard, but he hits it on the ground. Um, looks overmatched in most plate appearances. Uh, I, in, his offense has to be Nolan Arenado level for him to be justified at third base with his defense, which at best with his size and everything that you've heard about him may be league average at best. This is a guy that has to in the corners hit 20 home runs, drive an 80 runs, hit 260, 270. If he doesn't do that, he's worthless. He's got to give you at least what Escobar last year gave you. That kind of season. And that wasn't a great season. He's got to at least give you that. He's got to move towards that. And we haven't seen anything that indicates he's going to move towards that. Now, Blank Myers says the kid is is talented. Uh, he, he struggles with confidence. You know, there is a lot of things that we've heard about Beatty that are things that are not fixable outside of he himself fixing them. Like focus, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Confidence, you know, the speed of the game was something that worried him earlier in the year. There is a lot of, listen, guys, best case scenario, okay? Let's just put the odds like, a realistic situation. We all want all these kids and all these prospects to pan out. Everybody assumes because they're ranked somewhere high on a list that they will pan out. Go back and look at baseball's top 50 prospects from 10 years ago. And you could, you know, throw darts and hit guys that did nothing. Okay. There are plenty of them there. I'm not going to go into it. You could do the exercise. I've done it. I want all of them to hit. The reality is they're not. You know it, and I know it. And right now, if I had to put my money in Vegas, and it was money that would hurt to lose, but I had to put it down in Vegas, I'd say Mauricio and Alvarez will hit. Vientos and Beatty will not. I am actually quite confident if I put my money down in Vegas now, just on Beatty not being a big leaguer, that's the guy that's not going to be a big leaguer. That's how confident I am. And look, I've heard nothing but good things about the kid's makeup. And part of me thinks, because he's a good guy, because he's the son of a baseball coach, because he knows how to talk the talk, that maybe we've overlooked some obvious things that for any other player, and I hate to say it, if he was Latino or not white, and I hate to go that route, we'd probably be talking more about it. And I'm not that guy. But let's put that on the table. I hate to say it, but it's true. You know, coach's son, big kid, you know, good-looking kid. You know, all shuck speaks well from Texas. I don't have anything against the kid, but he's no good. He's no good. And he's the only one of those four. I mean, I put Vientos, too. Alvarez and Mauricio, I probably would say I feel confident. And I have to see more from Mauricio. But, you know, he looks, just by watching him, he looks so much better in 20 at-bats than Beatty has ever looked. I mean, Alvarez is the only one that I'm confident will be in the lineup. Let me rephrase that. Alvarez is the only one I'm confident will be in the lineup every day next year. He's earned that. Now, he might bat at the bottom of the order, and he may not be Mike Piazza or an all-star, but 
a guy who could catch and throw and hit you 25 home runs, even if he hits 220, I'm okay with that. That's what you wanted out of McCann. Let's face it. Can he give you what you thought? The floor. And then there's, but his, his potential is so much more. You could live with that at that position. Now, Mauricio, you got to see that guy that's athletic and hits the ball hard and hits for average and power. We haven't seen the power yet, but we've certainly seen him hit the ball over the yard. So, you know, we'll see. Vientos, to me, I don't know. I mean, I like him better than Beatty. He's shown me more than Beatty in the big leagues. So, you know, right now we have to be very realistic. Just like these pitchers, Scott, Hamill, Tidwell, Suarez, name them. They're not all going to hit. They're not all going to hit. You know, what happened with the Mets with Mats and Wheeler and DeGrom and Syndergaard Harvey, that's rare. That was a, a stroke of luck, of good good blessing. Doesn't happen. And the reason the baby Mets thing drives me nuts because it's just like Generation K and Five Aces and Dark Knight and Thor. You know what impresses me? Winning. Not comic book character stuff. And I understand it's part of marketing the game and the t-shirts and the fun and a younger fan. You know, younger people, especially a certain generation, if you're listening, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just being honest with you. You get caught up in hype so much easier. And it's always existed. Hype has always existed. But media now, especially because of the amount of media that's out there, hype is so much more than it's ever been. And it's exhausting. Can't they just go out and be rookies? That be the ba- we gotta label them the baby Mets. That don't help. I mean, one you know, a handful at bats for one, and a pretty good season for a rookie in Alvarez. The other two have done nothing. Beatty has done nothing. I have yet, and I all I've heard is good things about this kid from guys that I have respect for. I have seen absolutely nothing that says this kid is a big leaguer. He doesn't even belong on the roster right now. If they were in contention, they would not be at third base. You know that, and I know that. Oh, he's got to play every day. Well, yeah, I guess you could play him in garbage time every day. But at some point, it's embarrassing. What, was he getting like a buck 20? You know, since he came up? I, I'm actually going to do what I, I know that you guys hate when I like try to scroll through the internet and do my show because I like to do my notes before. But I'm going to bring him up one more time. And I'm not trying to turn this into a baby bashing session. Because, again, Blankmeyer had nice things to say about all. He thought Mauricio was a guy that could stick at second. thought he was very talented, liked Alvarez's strength and power and his improvement on defense. Actually said nice things about Vientos and that he's a guy that he believes will hit. It's his position that he lacks. I'm not so sure he's going to hit consistently, but we'll see. I mean, the guy was 0 for 18. He's at 174 in September, baby. A 348 OPS in seven games. I mean, guys, there's no improvement. Do you understand the second half of this season? He's hitting 141 in 100 at-bats, a 441 OPS. Do you know I could bring any minor leaguer up and probably they can do better? Anybody at AAA could probably come up and do better than that. And they don't have to be on any prospect list. I mean, this is just reality. I know you don't want to hear it, but I have to prepare you for what's going to happen. And not every prospect is going to hit. It's not Billy Epler's fault or David Stern's fault or everybody's, the player development team's fault. Some of it might be. Some of it might be. It's the player. 
And look, you can improve Beatty's launch angle. You can, you know, do what you do with Mauricio and Vientos, with analytics, whatever. In the end, it comes from the player. And right now, the one that's so to summarize, Blankmeyer thinks they're all good. Okay. The confidence thing with Beatty, huge red flag. Alvarez, I'm confident on. Mauricio, I'm intrigued by. And Vientos, I'm not sure about. That's the best way I could put it. That's my feeling on the baby Mets. One I know is going to stick. One I'm pretty sure. I I like to think he's going to stick in Mauricio. One stinks. That's Beatty. And one I'm perplexed about. I don't know what to think about with Vientos. I'll tell you what. I think Vientos will have a better career than Beatty. Beatty's going to be another Dom Smith, but he won't even have the kind of success that Dom Smith have, the way I see it now. He's going to be a guy that's highly tatted, he's going to get chance after chance with the Mets, okay? Or he might get traded. Maybe he gets traded. Don't be surprised he gets traded this winter. Not that his value. He has still some value, but because of who he is, coach's son going back, top draft pick, he'll go somewhere else. And then he'll fail again. And he'll be like Dom Smith at some point where if he hits enough to justify being on a second division club starting... He'll be that guy that you'll see bounce around second division clubs because they need to fill out their roster when they have a bad year, and he may be lightning in a bottle. I just feel that's where this guy's going. And I have nothing personal against him. I mean, he's a nice, he seems like a nice guy. Everything I've heard is big and good about him. Big time, uh, attitude, solid, you know. But confidence and focus, whew, those are things that you at this point, and it's not 19 years old, guys. He's already 23. 22-23. Yes, you can get better. It does happen. Look at DJ Stewart, but the Mets don't have six years to wait on this guy. Not in this town. Not at that position. Not when you have all these other ifs, 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 ifs throughout the roster because you're going to be incorporating a lot of young players over the next you know, two years, potentially. But maybe that could change with free agency and with Stearns potentially coming in or another president of baseball operations, a team president. All right, you've had enough of me, I'm sure. Let's wrap it up here. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can turn up a podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. And of course, I want to thank the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network for supporting the show. I am your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Extended garbage time, Talking Mets. Till then, take care, everybody. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.